0: You're listening to the NASM CPT podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National
1: Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie. It's good to be here. We had a little break because our producer, Greg, went on vacation, and I am envious in so many ways, except I can also basically say I've been on a three- or four-month vacation at this point, so I I don't know. I just wish I could have gone somewhere. Uh, Today, I'm super excited. I have a friend of mine that's that's a guest on the podcast. And she and I met years and years ago, but we actually got a chance to know each other when we were both speaking at a conference in Indonesia, in Jakarta. And it was an opportunity where we actually got to, the people who were speaking got a chance to hang out. And um, and so other folks like Mark Cornell and Judy King, uh, we all got a chance to get to know each other, learn a little bit about each other and what each other does. And then of course, uh, Dr. Emily Splickle and I are neighbors here in New York City. So she's been over to one of my training spot studios before and she agreed to be a guest. And not only did she agree to be a guest, I'm excited because she also contributed um, as a subject matter expert to the, the new and updated corrective exercise specialization that NASM has. So I am here and I'm excited to welcome Dr. Emily Splickle. Thank you so much for being on this show, welcome.
0: Of course. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on the show. And it was an honor to be part of the latest corrective exercise textbook. So that was a, a pleasure to contribute to that.
1: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about tell you don't have to tell me I know I'm familiar, <laughs> but and I think a lot of people are. But can you just give us a little bit about you, your background uh, from from fitness and beyond and then back to fitness again?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a podiatrist. That's what the doctor is. Um, So I am a clinician, but I actually consider myself much more Uh, The way that everyone who's listening, so a fitness professional, a movement specialist, I'm kind of in the trenches of everyone who is listening today because I started in fitness. I've been in fitness for over 20 years, doing one-on-one, doing group exercise, and now I've segued into fitness education, um, and my passion with podiatry, with fitness, with just everything of how I look at the human body is the movement aspect of that of course, feet being really the, the epicenter of that. But I look at feet from a very integrated perspective, and I hope to bring that excitement to other professionals so that they continuously see that, you know, fitness isn't just squats and pushups, but there's this huge evolution of it and advancements in the, the science and the research behind fitness.
1: Well, I think that there's some really interesting things about the feet, and I want to get into that. But I also want to get, I want to talk to you about your start in this. So you were uh, an exercise professional and then you went back to med school, but I don't think podiatry was your first choice. Like, how did you end up getting there? And then, Uh, You certainly made the most out of it. You you went into it and then you turned it into a wonderful educational platform for fitness professionals. So talk us through that and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of the feet, what they do, how they affect up the kinetic chain.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my trajectory, my career trajectory was very a zig and a zag. zag. (laughs) So for those that kind of think that our careers have to be you know you have to know at 18 years old where you're going to be at 40 years old is that's not the way that life works it's is really the zigzags that gives you character and shapes your your personality and opens doors and opportunities that you never would imagine. Um, but I had started as a gymnast. So, as a competitive gymnast for 13 years, that really shaped my appreciation for movement, uh, my appreciation for body weight exercises and body tension, which is what I, I put into a lot of my education. Um, and then I got into fitness just by chance. Um, my bachelor's is actually forensic science. So if you wanted to speak like CSI and some crime scene, we could totally get into that better <laughs> way. Yes. Um, But my, my background is forensics. And then I left that because I was missing, something wasn't feeding my soul as far as um, the human body and the movement components. I actually left forensics and walked into a crunch fitness in New York City, the one that used to be on 42nd and 8th, and just said, I want to be a personal trainer. They looked me up and down, and were like, "Okay, you look like a trainer, so you're hired. Um, little did I know what I did not know. And then that led to the evolution of you know teaching classes one on one. What happened is I started getting injured. Um, From being an athlete and then getting into fitness and teaching classes, I found that I was actually in the physical therapist office (laughs) much more than on the studio floor. So I knew that I I had to find a way to take my passion for fitness and movement and evolve it. So I looked at medicine. Podiatry was one that came into my forefront, partly because there's a school in New York City, which is where I was training. And out of convenience, this is the way you have to be careful with your career, out of convenience. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I became a podiatrist because it was in New York city. I, I needed to stay in New York city for my, for my personal soul. I needed to be in New York city and I also needed to continue doing fitness. So those were at that moment in my life. Those were what was feeding my soul was New York and fitness. Um, But then I had to evolve. So the podiatry worked. Uh, uh, Long story short (laughs) is I started to realize the uh, very segregated approach within podiatry. And I know that that was kind of conflicting with my belief as as a former athlete and even being in fitness at that point, you know, 18 years ago now, um, that it wasn't what I thought I would get out of podiatry. So I started to try to connect the dots in the way that I could. And then when I was in residency, I actually quit residency. This is another zig that I usually would not recommend. I quit residency, <laughs> went back to school. I know everyone is like holding on to their yeah. seat. Went back to school and got my master's in human movement. And the master's in human movement, me getting my master's was at the exact moment that born to run and this barefoot oh. running boom happened. So this is all like circumstance, right? That So I'm here. I had my podiatry degree. I wasn't licensed, but I had my podiatry degree starting to get into the speaker circuit in fitness, Mm -hmm. going back to get my master's. And then here's the barefoot running boom. So I'm starting to see how I can put these pieces together and started to research and focus on barefoot science. Started to kind of push myself and position myself within the speaker circuit of, okay, we're in fitness but I'm the only one with the podiatry, so I can kind of share a unique perspective. And then I, the glue of that was the master's degree. So then fit, went back, finished my residency so I could be licensed. And then really it's just taken off from there of how I look at fitness movement, podiatry, and then the glue in between is the movement specialist master's degree. And then the fact that I am very passionate about self Uh, continuously learning, self-learning, but continuously learning. And I think that everybody who's listening is you forever have to be a student because the human body is new stuff is continuously being researched and found out. And, you know, there's other trends such as fascia was a trend and now it's kind of commonplace. Um, But breathing is another one that it was trendy now i'm very heavy on the emotional interoceptive biopsychosocial aspect of things um and it's it's just continuously evolved and it will forever continuously evolve
1: well let's let's go back to born to run because this is is, it's a jumping off point for you and that transition in your career um and And it was an amazing book. So Born to Run, an amazing book. There are a lot of really incredible things about it, but they're talking about running and how um, in many ways Nike, who started this process, changed the gait pattern of humans, where if you were going to run and no longer do you do a ball strike with the foot, you start to now do a heel strike because of the cushion. Now, if anybody has ever run without shoes on, on a hard surface, you do not do a heel strike. You do not, it hurts. So what they did is they cushioned our heel and it just changed, it changed our gait. It changed our running gait. Talk to me about this process and and why that took place in your, in your estimation and then what changed about it. And then this whole industry starts to change. And then you get to this book, Born to Run, where a shift starts happening, and then you and your company, uh, your Barefoot Training Company, start to really capitalize on this. So, talk me through that process.
0: Yeah. So the the changes in footwear really was around the 1970s, and the barefoot, or not the barefoot, the running boom of the 1970s, and what started happening is even back in the 1970s, you would see an injury rate in runners around 70 to 80%, depending on the research study. So Nike being a uh, very strong footwear company saw an opportunity and the opportunity was to use footwear to reduce those overuse injuries and that 70 to 80% (laughs) injuries in runners. What they did is they responded by putting cushion in the shoes, a heel toe drop in the shoes, Things to take the stress off of the Achilles tendon, the plantar fascia, and to cushion from the impact forces. Little did they know that the injury rate would pretty much stay the same. (laughs) It it stayed around 70 to 80%. So a lot of people kind of moved away from, from, okay, it's not the shoe then, it's more something with this movement pattern. Um, When Born to Run came out in... Uh, like 2008 2009 10 like those years was kind of where it was people started challenging a little bit of do we need that cushion do we need a heel toe drop and what's interesting is that the born to run book and the minimal footwear that followed nike free um vibram for so the five finger shoes was probably a leader the leader in this category and that's that's where i started speaking on the fitness circuit about it is because all the trainers started using these five finger shoes and Vibram started sponsoring a lot of the fitness conferences. So there was this, oh, well, we should be in minimal shoes. And everyone just didn't know the safety or the why and the how and the progressions and the appropriateness of it. Um, So certain people started getting injured because of that. But the intention of Vibram And Nike free was that maybe we don't need all of that cushion. Maybe we don't need a heel toe drop. And when you look at the research, you know, sometimes you can actually see that the injury rates stay kind of the same, which is where I, I come in and say that it's not so much the footwear. You can't rely on the footwear. You have to make sure that you are training your foot and making sure you have the proper pattern the movement pattern which comes to what we're moving specialists so the movement pattern and the Foot strength and foot awareness has to be there so that, regardless of the shoe that you're wearing, you're able to withstand whatever those forces are. Um, and that's where EBFA comes in: is that we try to bring solid science and education on how to strengthen the foot. What is the sensory element to the foot? What are overuse injuries and running-related injuries? Anyway, they're vibration. So if people understand that. Foot ground reactions are vibrations. Well, okay. Well, how does that affect the shoes and the features of the shoe? And how do I kind of offset that vibration in a minimal shoe? Is going to be higher. That means your foot has to be stronger. Um, so this is really how this kind of area has um, shaped. And what's what's interesting is that Nike, being very uh, a key player in this minimal footwear barefoot running boom space has actually pulled away from that and they don't have in my opinion a really strong uh, acceptance embracing what it means to wear a minimal shoe and I was a consultant for Nike the innovation kitchen for years in this boom I was a consultant and they would come to my office and set a recorder down and just have me talk and there'd be five you know Uh, designers and marketing specialists from the innovation kitchen. And they would just want me to speak. And then I would look at shoes and I would twist them and turn them. And they'd be like, why are you doing that? And I would just explain these things of how the, how the foot and the footwear and the nervous system works and and interacts with the ground and with the intent that it would inspire them and that they would kind of get it in a sense. And and sadly they're Mm -hmm. a design company, an aesthetic design company. That is really their number one concern. So they've actually pulled away and a lot of their minimal shoes are not minimal in the way that they used to be. So other companies that fully embraced what it means to move minimal, like Vivo Barefoot, Zero Shoes, Ultra, you know, other companies like that, Field Grounds, there's so many, especially out of Europe. There's a lot of companies out of Europe. Um, They really embrace the minimal footwear lifestyle and that's much more Uh, follows my belief system than companies such as Nike.
1: Can you talk me through then the, there was the big litigation that took place with the, I think it, was it the five finger shoe? Was it V with that? Yeah, Uh, there was big litigation and they basically, they were making claims. And here's the difference for those of you who are doing business, unless you have uh, unadulterated proof, you cannot make a claim (laughs) and you can say, that these shoes may do dot dot dot, um, and the difference between may and will cost them a, a multi multi million dollar lawsuit. To, uh, and I don't want to spend our time talking about shoes, but all of this builds up to what it is that we're going to be talking about. And this was kind of the beginning of it. And for the naysayers out there, they're going to point to this litigation and say, well, what about this? So can you speak to that for a moment? And then we'll get into the human movement science part. Of
0: Of course. So why, why do you think it's important is because when all of this was happening was when I was launching my my company, so my certification, my education, and a lot of people kept saying, like all of this bad press around Vibram and the five finger shoes. They're like, that's going to destroy what you're doing. Like, do you not see that this is like injuries? The New York Times, I remember, did something about increased bone marrow edema wearing five finger shoes. So then people are like. Bone marrow edema, like what is that? Like this. It's just like your body responds to stress by creating an acute inflammatory response. That can also happen in the bone. And what happens is if you stress something and then you back off, this is the total human body. You stress something, you back off, it repairs itself. Stress it again, it back off, it repairs itself. Guess what? You become stronger. That is how you become stronger. So all of this was happening, bad press around Vibram. Yes, technically, Vibram was making claims that you will have, you know, you will run better, you will run more efficiently, you'll have better um, muscle activation, you'll have better efficiency, where it was really trying to make an X equals Y, versus really Understanding that you still have to have proper mechanics, that you still have to strengthen your foot, you still have to do foot recovery, how you transition from supportive to minimal shoes, all that stuff they were not covering. So people were getting injured. That's what the media totally ate up. And then they did get sued, saying that they made false claims that if you use the shoes, you will run efficiently. Or if you use the shoes, you will not have foot pain. And kind of associations like that, um, very similar litigation to Skechers' shape ups, mm-hmm. and Skechers saying you wear these rocker shoes and you will get a booty like J Lo or Kim Kardashian and right. things like that, or you could you can lose weight with wearing a shoe. All of those claims have now from a. Um, prior litigation have told all of the industry's footwear in particular that you have to be very careful with your claims because the consumer will eat it up or drink it up and just take it for literal. So with any of the, the movement specialists, you have to be very Vague in what you're saying. Like we don't claim that if you strengthen your feet that you will have higher glute activation, but we do see trends and associations of that. And you can kind of, you know, be a little bit vague in that. Um, But it is important to understand that kind of some of the negative association with footwear and barefoot. Right. So, bare, barefoot does not mean running. And that's what I've spent years doing is that if I say you're going to be barefoot strong, now the consumer or the client and the professional doesn't think that that means running. For the first five years of me doing this, it, that's what they thought is like, yeah. oh, you're a running coach. No, barefoot training, barefoot activation. You can stand on one spot on a neboso mat or on a vibration plate, and you are barefoot training yeah yeah.
1: that makes sense so i'm i want to explain something that i got this is how i speak to my clients when they especially used to it's not as much anymore that it comes up but i explain it where you know since we're kids we're we're a young young age we start in essence putting a cast on our children's feet And by casting the foot like you would cast anything else, the muscles around that area will atrophy. Um, With a cast or a splint around the foot, that foot no longer spreads out, it no longer opens up in a certain way, but it also no longer has to strengthen a certain way. And by splinting the foot, we are, in essence, making the footwear uh, have to be smarter. So now my footwear, my foot's weak and and then I pronate. And so now I need a, an insert that does this. And now I have an insert and it's helping support me in a particular weakness that I have. And that could be a progressive weakness. So that insert may have to be modified and eventually changed because the, the fix creates more weakness that has to be supported in yet another way, again, with your cast, with your splint. And so the, the feet are not strong. They're not strong. We we as a society and societies in general have weak feet, primarily because, in my estimation, because of this casting, the splinting that that we do from day one. If we did that with any other part of the body, like just you imagine, just wearing a weight belt for basically your entire life. And then somebody tells you weight belts aren't good for you, take it off and then go lift weight. Your spine will absolutely fold over on itself. You are going to herniate, you're going to stenose, you're going to have all of these horrible things happen, but that's what happened with the shoes. You've been wearing a cast for, for 40 years. And then you say, okay, now let's, that's not good for you. Take that off and put on a bit, just go barefoot or put on something that doesn't absorb and support you. And now you have to go for a run and you have, you have so many issues that take place because of that. So the injury rate, I get it. I get what happened with that, but I also get the importance of what you're saying, which is like anything else. there there are progressions and you cannot progress from doing nothing to doing everything in a certain way that and so when I first got the five finger shoes when I used them years ago I'm gonna tell you I wore like one day on one day off and my feet sore they were sore from walking around one day in those barefoot shoes and so if I'm sore after a workout I certainly am not going to just go hammer that same spot again day after day. Otherwise, overuse injuries start to take place and, and overuse can be multiple small things or it can be one or two or three really big impacts that take place and and you get hurt. And I believe this is what happened with people where they started transitioning from cushioned footwear, the splint and the cast to other types of footwear that just didn't support them.
0: Yeah. I mean, so uh, what I, what I'm grateful of as being a clinician is that my job is essentially taking someone who's injured and transitioning them back to their baseline functional level, whether that's post-surgical, that's post plantar fascial tear, it's post fracture, whatever it is. And that's an art that's not, that's not a hard set science of, you know, by week two, you should be able to this, by week four, you do this, that I actually progress my patients very slowly on that. And the thing that I wanna emphasize is that you want to balance stress and recovery, which I believe every, every trainer and coach and movement specialist should appreciate that because exactly what you said, you don't do your biceps or your back day after day after day, because you need to have the latency period for it to recover. And that latency period is really important and critical because stress ultimately does make us stronger, but it is controlled stress and it is uh, slow increases in that stress. Right. Well, I have someone who has let's say a fracture, it's really the same progression. If they had surgery, they had a fracture. I do a lot of stem cells in my office for plantar fascial tears. So they're in a boot for four weeks. So picture someone who had that. Um, The way that I transition them back is you have to think of scaling the, the structure and support that you're downgrading while upticking the strength and the stress on the foot. So I'm kind of simultaneously doing things like that. Um, if they're in a cam walker or a walking boot, I then move them to a stiff shoe that has an orthotic. I know orthotic, you're like, oh my God, she said orthotic, but an orthotic.
1: Not me, I'm good.
0: <laughs> this is transitioning, we're trying to control someone. So into a supportive shoe with an orthotic, can have that conversation if you want, while strengthening the foot and doing myofascial release to the foot and to the, to the calves and to the hips so that you have this kind of balance that's happening. And then, I mean, they would do that for four weeks. They would be in a supportive shoe, stiff shoe and orthotic for four weeks if they were in a cam walker. And I would even say for those that are in New York, because New York is very unique, is that if I had someone who was in a cam walker for six to eight weeks, I would say go into your supportive shoe in your orthotic environment when you are at, we'll just say home, even though I know that might not be totally at home office, you're in a controlled environment, but still wear the cam walker when you walk on the street, because that's, that's jumping way too high. 10,000 steps a day or they commute and walk to work. That's a very high stress that we need to start by you being, in your home and office, not in the cam walker, still something quasi supportive. And then we we drop that down, right? And I would do it within two weeks. And then okay, can you at home be in like a more minimal shoe? Okay, and then when you walk on the street, you'll be in the supportive shoe in the orthotic. Okay, you got that two weeks, you're good, you're good. Okay, then you can be barefoot home, and you can start pulling away the orthotic and the structure when you when you're commuting and walking. So that's really clinical experience that that allows that. But the undertone of it is that as you're transitioning shoes or you're coming out of an injury, is that you're slowly introducing the stress by increasing the recovery, which could be mild release, but it's also days off. So yeah. if I have a runner who had a stress fracture, and now they're coming back, or any other injury that we've mentioned, even Achilles tendonitis, or something that some of the trainers would see is I have them stress their body. Say go for a run, uh, but like a mile. You, you don't go back to where you were, a mile. And then, so that was your stressor. You have to wait two days, not not a day, 24 hours, but we're right. trying to get, looks like that Dom's effect, right? So you know, like you have a hard workout and you're like, woo, next day, you're like, oh, wait till the next day.
1: I know, yeah, that second day soreness <laughs> yeah. is the worst. You know that, you
0: know it think the same thing with inflammatory responses and stress on your body, which means if you had plantar fasciitis and you're now cured of it and it's good, so you're like, I'm gonna go for a run and you go for a run and you feel fine. Next day you're like, okay, I feel fine. I don't feel my heel. Please, please wait another day. And if on day two, you're like, okay, my heel still doesn't hurt me. You go for the exact same run that you did on Monday. So it's the same stress that you're matching. And then you wait two more days. If you're like, fine, fine, okay, great. Now on that next run, you can just bump it up a little bit further, maybe go for two miles, but then to see how I'm, I'm slowly increasing and building in that recovery with kind of the Dom's mindset that a lot of inflammatory responses don't show their face until you hit like a 48 hour window.
1: Well, let's keep talking about plantar fasciitis right now and then uh, potentially some other uh, foot pathologies. And then I also want to make sure that we have this conversation about, and and you from your human movement science perspective will understand this better than most podiatrists, um, but what it looks like up the kinetic chain from mm-hmm. dysfunction at the feet. Mm-hmm. but let's stay on on the plantar fasciitis and then and then maybe have a conversation about some other pathologies that that we as personal trainers need to know about we can help support but we do not help treat so with that said um plantar fasciitis uh, first of all what is it and mm-hmm. when can we say hey i, I you know let's let's work with your physical therapist and and your podiatrist, but stretching, is that okay? Is foam rolling the bottom of the foot, that golf ball thing, is that okay? Uh, Does stretching cause more damage? than just talk us through what this looks like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So plantar fasciitis or heel pain, plantar heel pain is probably one of the most common things that we see as podiatrists. But Mm -hmm. as far as Foot complaints that you would have in clients is probably the same thing that my heel hurts, my heel hurts. And then people may say I have plantar fasciitis or I've been diagnosed with plantar fasciitis. I do agree that of course, being a, a personal trainer and coach that that's not in your scope to diagnose and say you have X or Y, but if they come back and have that great. Okay. So now plantar fasciitis as a actual condition is an inflammation slash micro tearing of the insertion of the plantar fascia, which is on the bottom of the heel on the inside. So just right on the inside of the plantar heel is where that primary insertion is. And, and it's
1: awful. By the yeah. way, if you've never had it, it very is awful. awful.
0: It is very painful. Yes. It's like a sharp stabbing pain. Like someone's driving a knife in your, in your heel. Um, So when a patient says that, or a client says that, you know, appreciate that they're not exaggerating it. Um, So that, that micro tear, it happens when you start to lose some of the elasticity and the dynamic response of the plantar fascia. That could be because you have flat feet or maybe you have high arches so it's a different reason or you were doing something like running or something excessively stressing the elastic demands of the foot. The micro tearing slash inflammation that starts as acute can oftentimes turn chronic in that if you, when you micro tear it and you get inflammation, Inflammation is sticky. Inflammation anywhere in the body is sticky. So, if you have fibers that are micro tearing and then there's inflammation and then they kind of stick to each other and adhere. And then, in addition, the way that your body repairs those micro tears of collagen fibers is that it repairs them with a type of collagen that is not rubber bandy or elastic. So, now you're starting to see that we get stickiness and we'll call it scar tissue so people understand it a little bit better, but like a scar tissue response in the area. So now you go back to stress your foot, you're running again, you're kind of running through the plantar fasciitis or the plantar fascial pain, and now you create more micro tears, which means you create more inflammation. Then you get more scar tissue and you actually start to get a thickening, obviously not that thick, but you get a thickening of the plantar fascia and the thickening of the plantar fascia is telling me in particular, if I'm looking at it on ultrasound or MRI, that that is a very degenerated, chronic, static, scarred plantar fascia. So now if you have someone kind of in that state, maybe they have, maybe they're acute, maybe they're chronic. What you could ask them without even diagnosing them is say, how long has your heel been bothering you? If they say more than six months, it is chronic. Okay. So that just gives you some guidelines. Again, we're not diagnosing, but you're just saying, okay, you've had it for a while. Maybe there's some stickiness down there. There's some stasis. Okay. This isn't going to respond by someone who had plantar heel pain for two days. Right. So just right. you can yourself that way. Now, why I mentioned that is if, if it is acute and they had it for two days back off, release the feet, mobilize and take, take a little break, right? You're not giving them any other guidelines. Um, If they've had it for a longer period, they may not respond to releasing the feet, releasing the calves, strengthening the core and everything else. Like maybe all your other clients with plantar fasciitis, again, this is not within your scope, but it helps you to understand, well, why does Johnny who had his heel pain for two years, it's all he complains about is just not getting better. And I tell him, you know, release his feet and release his hips and release his cat. And he's not getting better. Like I. You know, that's that means he needs to have a further evaluation for potentially a plantar fascial tear or something like that. You could say, have you thought of getting a second opinion? You could say that. Right. You're not guiding him in a different way. Or you could also say, listen, Johnny, for two years, you've been dealing with this immobilizing heel pain. Like, let's get past this already. Like, why are you dealing with this? Like, one, it's annoying me. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Complaining about it. But no, it's you know, life is short. There are treatment options. Like, seek it out. This is what I tell my patients is come on, like, don't you want to live your life? There are solutions to this. So I'm giving you those solutions. So maybe nudge them in the direction that sees someone else who might give a different perspective of why you have your heel pain, okay? So let's say you have someone who has plantar heel pain, acute, chronic, doesn't matter right now. If they're a 10 out of 10, you just kind of back off. You don't wanna stress the foot when someone is in severe pain. You don't wanna stress any joint or body when they're 10 out of 10. Their goal through their doctor and their physical therapist to get it into a more quiescent state. As soon as something being, becomes quiescent, maybe it's just like annoying pain or one out of two. Now you can come in and start to look at movement patterns of what might be contributing to that foot pain. But do they have, you know, a lower cross syndrome? Is their deep core not engaging? Are their glutes weak? That's where you can come in, and that's where that's what my education is built around. Is someone with a history of a quiescent foot pain? And you're trying to prevent it from coming back, or you're trying to prevent it from ever showing face and starting. Okay. To answer your question of if someone has foot pain, what are some kind of general recommendations that you could give them? Is you could release the bottom of the foot. You could, you know, release them on a golf ball, or lacrosse ball. You can myofascial release the calves to increase uh, ankle mobility and to take tension off of the soleus and the gastroc fibers. Um, From a stretching perspective, there is some research that if you do uh, ankle stretches while dorsiflexing your big toe, that that shows to have a little bit increased response to plantar fasciitis. I'm much more a supporter of myofascial release. So I prefer to have my patients release on a golf ball or a lacrosse ball or something like that versus doing some sort of plantar fascial stretch. Um, but that's kind of where I would keep it. And then we can expand if there's other comments on that,
1: uh, a couple. So the, the bottom of the foot, are they rolling on that point of pain on the anterior heel, or are they are supposed to stay away from that point of pain, but still on the bottom of the foot.
0: Great question. So whatever, whatever joint or area is painful. In this case, we're talking about the plantar fascia. You always go what's called Perry. Peri means around the tissue. So I want you to go distal, which means okay. further down. So into the foot further and proximal, which would mean into the soleus and the gastroc, right? And then let's say if it was my knee, okay. Like for the knee, you're not going to be literally on the knee or your shoulder. Like you, you're never directly on it or your IT band insertion. You're not on it. You go peri the tissue. And that's definitely important with the plantar fascia because it is such a heightened uh, pain sensitivity for a lot of people, this is where they're like, okay, my plantar fasciitis is worse than giving birth. Like people will sure. give that analogy of how painful it is because it's so sharp and finite yep. and you have all of your body weight in force going through that tissue when you walk. Um, so you do want to be mindful of not being directly on it.
1: Perfect. No, that is, that is good to know. I also find, and I don't know. I mean, you from a clinical position, and you've talked about the the data that was out there about the extension of the big toe. And so, I have actually used goniometers with some of my clients who have plantar fasciitis, and I find far less um, flex, like extension of the big toe, with people that happen to have it. But what we also find is that there is a correlation from posterior chain tightness and plantar fasciitis. So that could be the calves even up into the hamstrings, uh, that there's this kind of posterior chain tightness that's going on there. Why is there such a correlation between all of these other components of the foot that may not actually even cross over to where that place hurts?
0: Right. So that, that demonstrates the integrated nature of our fascial system or our myofascial system. So the plantar fascia, which I'll just, I'll show on my hand just to kind of demonstrate, but this will be my heel. This will be my, my, hell, it's my great toe. So it originates here and it comes to the arch. And when it comes to the arch, it starts to split and it splits into five slips and those slips insert onto the base of your toes. So they cross the joint, which is called the MPJ or the lever of the foot. They cross the digit joint, okay? So it crossing that joint, which is the extension that you're referencing, that is part of your plantar fascia that inserts there. So if the plantar fascia is excessively tight or restricted or sticky, you're going to see that lack of extension in the great toe. But in addition to that, here we're coming back. So it's the five slips, but now it's back to the origin. Here, it actually blends into your Achilles tendon. So there's fascial studies showing that your plantar fascia blends into your Achilles tendon. And it's not uncommon for people with plantar fasciitis to also have Achilles tendonitis. They become very similar in their nature in the presentation. The Achilles tendon, of course, influences ankle mobility. So now we have another joint that's affected. And then that runs into your calves, which blends into your hamstrings. And then that goes all the way up to to the top of your head, which is your posterior fascial line. But you could see how, since that's now crossing the pelvis, that if I'm standing, this is great for for trainers. If I'm standing and I do a deadlift, Mm -hmm. right? I do a deadlift exercise. I am now stressing my plantar fascia. So when I have a patient that says, I'm I'm treating them for plantar fasciitis, Dr. Spogel, uh, can I run? No, you cannot run because that is stress on your plantar fascia. Can can I ride a bike? Okay, fine. You can ride your bike. Um, can I do deadlifts? No, you cannot do deadlifts. <laughs> they, they literally run through a Rolodex. And so the things that I will allow yeah, them
1: yeah,
0: to do yeah. really will not stress their plantar fascia. One impact, impact forces stress your plantar fascia. That is one of the most common causes for plantar fasciitis I see in my office. But then the other one could be, and we still need to appreciate, that it could be from doing squats, which puts a demand on your ankles. It could be from doing lunges because now I'm flexing my big toe. It could be from doing deadlifts because now I'm flexing at the hip joint. So all of those we need to appreciate when we do have someone. And if you're thinking, well, if I'm doing a deadlift, the foot's like way down there, there's no way that's stressing the foot. Fastially, it it is, it's all connected. And we need to make sure that we warm up, we warm up, the bottom of the feet before we do a lower lower extremity workout, the calves, the, the pelvis, the hip, the lower back. So when you're just thinking of fascial trains and mobility and hydration and fluidity to fascial tissue, this is where understanding how deeply connected the foot is to a lot of those fascial lines is.
1: I love that. All right, so I'm going to change gears now. Let's move past plantar fasciitis, but I do appreciate what you brought to that conversation. I, I want to ask you about flat feet and and then we'll get to Greg and we'll get some questions. If you have time, we'll get some questions from yeah. people that are watching our live stream. Um, flat feet. Is it a muscular issue or is it a ligamentous issue? Can flat feet be fixed? Okay. Great training, like strengthening the foot, not like surgically. <laughs>
0: yes. Yes. Because um, there is a surgery. <laughs> so flat feet, this is a, this is a key thing that, I want you to start to appreciate. And then if if it builds an appreciation and a curiosity, then I encourage you to learn more because feet are obviously very complex. Us speaking for an hour is not, you're not now certified in feet. It's much more complex than that. But let's start with some general associations and and lingo so that you are talking the right talk. So flat feet means nothing. (laughs) flat feet which is why I don't like like flat feet is because are you saying that they have no arch are you saying that they're pronating like which one do you mean really okay so when you and then are you saying that it's rigid or you're flexible so those are the things do they have an arch are they pronating is it rigid is it flexible that will help shape the answer to this question okay now there's two main types of why someone would have no arch? First one is that you can have what I call a pancake foot, which it, it helps you to understand what it is. And I will tell my patients, I'm like, it sounds
1: flat. It you sound
0: know, flat. no offense. You have a <laughs> pancake foot. Let's just for the sake of this conversation, that's what we're going to call it. Okay. Now, a pancake foot. This is the normal arch of the foot. It literally is just right down. There's no there's no actual pronation. There's no eversion. There's no internal mm. Nothing is going up the rest of the kinetic chain right, or kinematic chain. OK, right? it is just all of the bones in the foot. If I looked at an X-ray would be parallel to the ground. I see this a lot in certain um, cultures, certain countries that they come from, like Asia, Southeast Asia, you see this a lot, you see this a lot in China, you see it a lot in Africa. And the reason for that is really, those are the oldest populations, right? I don't want to get into evolution, but those are the oldest populations that were walking around. So just uh, genetically, certain feet are more pancake. And what that does is there is some research showing that a pancake foot definitely has some benefits from a balance perspective. Hmm. Uh, It it changes the way the foot is able to become what's called a rigid lever. So there are some advantages and disadvantages. But pancake foot, those are often rigid, rigid, which means you cannot take a hard plastic orthotic and put it under that foot and think that you are going to create an arch. Pancake foot, rigid, bones are parallel to the floor. If they're sitting on the floor or in a chair and the foot is straight out, you cannot see an arch. You could see that that is a flat foot from a mile away. Okay. That is a certain foot type. Now, the opposite of that would be the one that if you're sitting in a chair and they're looking, you're like, that's a beautiful arch. And then they stand up and they go, boom. Yeah. That's a flexible foot that is over pronating. Okay. okay? And the over pronation is because of two main reasons. First one is they may have ligament laxity. Ligament laxity is technically genetic. The composition of our collagen. Think of people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or um, people who are very flexible contortionists, right? That's actually a collagen characteristic that is genetic. Hypermobile joints and ligament laxity, that technically is genetic. So someone with hypermobility of the foot and all of the ligaments, remember there's over a hundred ligaments in the foot. Wow. So if you have ligament laxity, that's a lot of opportunity for the foot to become a little looser. And that loose means that the arch is gonna to start to fall down and spiral in. Okay? The other reason outside of ligament laxity would be muscle weakness, okay? Now the severity of the overpronation that the flexible overpronation is going to be much higher in someone who has ligament laxity. It is hard to build the muscular strength to try to combat hypermobility of the foot. We know that with other joints in the body, if someone has a true ligament laxity, and they're like a contortionist, and they love yoga, and they love to be in all these super stretchy positions, and then you try to get them to control a finite range of motion, it's very difficult for them. They like to be passive in their joints. Now, the foot that is more of a strength element, you will see that more on mild to moderate overpronation. It's on the other side of the spectrum. And that side of the spectrum where it's mild overpronation, this is where you can strengthen the intrinsics of the foot. You can strengthen the posterior tibialis, you can strengthen the core and the glutes, and you can use corrective exercise, muscular strengthening, and you will actually see a change in the arch height and a more neutralization of that foot. That is what I speak a lot about through EBFA. What I emphasize through minimal footwear, minimal footwear can also build an arch. There was a study of wearing, uh, I believe it was Vibram that they wore Vibram for, I think three months and they saw a change in their arch type and their, and their uh, subtalar joint came in. And that was because they strengthened the intrinsics and the muscles. That's a certain foot type that can do that. The one that is, over pronated and hypermobile. So it's more, more severe that I had said, kind of like the contortionist side of things. Yeah, Those ones, that's where the conversation of orthotics really does come in. And I, I do have to have a serious conversation with those patients. And they often come to me because they know that every other podiatrist in the past said, you need orthotics. And they're like, Dr. Splickle doesn't believe in orthotics, but there are exceptions to every rule and that would be one of them. Now, that rule could mean that because of your foot type and the hypermobility, that only when you run and you do high impact exercises, then I want you in the orthotics because no amount of muscle strength will be able to control the pronation of your ligament laxity that you have when you're running. So let's let's compromise here and do it when you're running. Okay. But maybe they're day-to-day walking, they're fine. Maybe when they're at the gym and they're doing squats and balance exercises and other exercises, they're fine. It's it's the gray that's in between a lot of this that is experience. And I try to share that experience so people can kind of have some guidelines. But that's where. Flat foot as a foot type, and people think that means that that's one. is is important for people to understand that I just broke it down into three more subgroups, and then within those subgroups, there's a lot of subtleties as well.
1: I am um, I'm learning so much, so (laughs) thank you. I this is amazing from somebody that has. Flat feet. Now I don't even know what that means when I say that, but from somebody that has flat feet and I have worked to strengthen my foot um, and my feet have gotten stronger, but there's still things going on there. And it's interesting because I've also worked on, I think initially there was a lot of pronation. And so I can, I can maintain a neutral sub joint relatively well. But I still kind of have flat feet, so uh, there's there's work that's being done on my end. Um, I want to ask so many more questions. I have so many questions listed. Uh, I want to respect your time, but I also, if you have time for a few questions, if anybody's asking questions on, from our live feed, can I can I just go to those guys real quick?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I actually have another. 20 minutes. So you okay. you tell me based on you're probably like oh my gosh I don't you might not have 20 minutes, but no no no
1: I'm I, I'm good I I I want to answer I want you to answer my questions, but I don't want to yeah. leave people hanging. So, oh, so out,
0: out of respect, if people do have questions. I'm here for I have another 20 minutes, and then I have another lecture that I'm giving. But you know this this is something that it's important, and because it's an area that has so many different subtleties to it. It, there are a lot of questions that come up and people it, it's important to understand yourself. It's important to understand your clients. And then I just encourage you to delve into it even further. And you know, not to promote my education, but I'm gonna promote my education is yeah. <laughs> go to evfaglobal.com. Um, or to my book, which is called Barefoot Strong, barefootstrong.com. And everything that I put out on our website, on our social media, I have a blog, I have our YouTube channel. The whole purpose of it is to help to empower you and to empower your clients to better understand how they can take ownership of their feet, that you don't have to just, you know, accept what you were told. I have flat feet, therefore, I must be in orthotics. No, I want you to challenge that. And I want you to think that even if maybe you do need orthotics, that there's a benefit to still strengthening your feet and to still being in a barefoot environment at certain points. It's really optimizing your foot function that fits your lifestyle so that you can keep doing the things that you love to do for years to come
1: amazing perfect greg can we go to you do we have any questions from the the thread yeah andrew in the chat wants to know what do you think of cushion shoes for clients who suffer from lower back pain uh
0: so cushion shoes such as like polka or new balance foam there's some uh, maximal shoes that are on the market now a lot of those shoes what they do is they The cushion absorbs the impact, but by absorbing the impact, you are taking away the important sensory aspect to how they perceive their movement. So I would actually challenge you and say, instead of a cushion shoe to kind of take away the impact that might be going to the lower back, is what if we trained the kinesthetic awareness of the foot and that the accuracy of how hard they strike the ground and their foot placement and the timing of their foot strength and their core activation, all of that was increased. Could that actually decrease the back pain in a way that is more natural and doesn't make them dependent on the cushion? That That's how you could look at both of those. And it's your choice or technically it's their choice on which way they want to go with that.
1: All right, excellent, Greg. What else you got? Yeah, uh, Diane wants to know any tips or best practice for helping people with high arches. Uh, mm-hmm. Was her question interesting?
0: Oh, so, yeah. So we spoke about flat feet and overpronation, high arches, which is supination. So that's the other side of the spectrum. You can typically think of them as more rigid. So this this rigid foot is a little bit more susceptible to impact forces. So if you're running and you're jumping it's difficult for a high arch foot to unlock and uh, become a little bit more mobile to absorb the impact forces. Uh, So I focus primarily on mobilization, fascial mobilization, releasing the bottom of the feet, releasing the ankles. When your feet are tight, your hips are tight. So I often find that a lot of patients and clients with a high arch, more rigid foot become very locked down in the hips and the pelvis that we want to focus on both areas from a mobilization perspective.
1: I like that. All right. Cool. Cool. What else do you have? I love it. We're knocking these out. Let's go. What else? (laughs) Uh, Another uh, high arch question. Can placing feet with lifted toes and high arches in yoga practice cause some negative impact on plantar fascia or other anatomy of the foot?
0: Uh, yes. So what that what that individual was explaining is what's called the windless mechanism. So I, I want everyone to do this. If you're barefoot uh, and you're listening to me, just so you can appreciate this is put your hand in the bottom of your foot. So put your hand on the bottom of the arch where's the camera on the bottom of the arch, just like this. OK, and if you feel the bottom of the arch, your fascia is in there somewhere. You might not be able to feel it, but it's there. Hold your foot on the bottom of the fascia. Now take your toes and bend them back. As soon as you do that you'll feel your fascia pop out right you can you can then ah oh, there's my plantar fascia okay what that is that's describing the windless mechanism where dorsiflexion or extension of the digits tightens pulls and essentially primes the plantar fascia when you do that yes it's pulling on the fascia If you do that while doing a movement that is stressing ankle mobility or you're pitching the hips forward and doing like a hip hinge, you are essentially further tightening the plantar fascia. So yes, if someone has plantar fasciitis, that may be painful to them, but if someone has a history or a potential of getting plantar fasciitis and you're trying to bring mobility to the area, Perhaps that's a beneficial thing. I would just do it in, um, there's something called nerve flossing. So I would do it in like a fascial flossing perspective, meaning that I would extend the toes, uh, dorsiflex the ankle, and then uh, do a hip hinge and then kind of flow through it versus statically holding it and holding and holding it. I would find fluidity in that position to then hydrate the fascia that way.
1: Oh, I like that. And so this is one of the things that I do also with um, the flexor hallucis and the digitorum, but particularly the big toe, so the great toe, Mm -hmm. is that I'll go up against a wall and I will stretch my toes against the wall and then I'll shift my knee towards the wall. And that will stretch the muscles on the bottom of the feet, the, the flexor hallucis and digitorum longus and starts to stretch that plantar fascia. And you'll get a soleus uh, stretch, very likely. You're not really going to get a gastroc stretch because of the bent knee as you shift Mm -hmm. over. Uh, And I have found just personally for me with my plantar fascia, and this is completely anecdotal, but I do also utilize this with other clients that have or have had plantar fasciitis. And it's incredibly helpful um, in this kind of not just a static stretch, but just move, hold for a moment, come yep. back shift forward hold for a moment come back to loosen up the tissues on the bottom of the feet
0: yep and, and that's demonstrated through research so that's what i was referencing Wonderful. earlier that research has demonstrated that if you get the big toe as part of it, it totally makes sense what i would do and i absolutely love that rick is i would do that and then uh stay there keep the legs straight and then just hinge at the hip. so now you have you're essentially bringing a little bit higher do two variances on that and then you're still integrating the fascia. If there are 10 out of 10, you're not doing this, but the way that that you're doing it as preventive, totally, totally love that.
1: Excellent. Um, one more, maybe? We get one more uh, question if we have them, Greg? Yeah, uh, one from Mark in the chat. Any insights to share regarding heel strike versus forefoot or midfoot strike in running?
0: That's a long answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Uh-oh.
0: So that, that is actually a really good question that we should have brought that up in the beginning part of our conversation where people were saying, you know, this is a barefoot running boom. And, you know, are oh, you a barefoot runner? Where really they're wearing Vibrams or Vivo barefoot. Mm-hmm. What barefoot running means or meant in that boom was actually much more of a strike pattern. So what people were referencing is that they were transitioning to a midfoot strike pattern versus completely barefoot. Most people just do a midfoot strike pattern and happen to call it I'm a barefoot runner or barefoot running. Um, now, the difference in strike pattern where this is important is it affects the timing that you are on the ground. So, your contact time and your time to exposure to impact forces. So, of those three, you have heel strike, you have midfoot, and you have forefoot heel strike has the longest contact time with the ground, which means you have the longest exposure to impact forces. Midfoot is going to be a little bit shorter on both the contact time and the exposure. And then forefoot is the shortest or the quickest. Now, each of those starts to affect your speed. So when you are running, you hit a certain speed heel striking, and then if you wanna run faster, then most people typically shift towards, or it's easier to find a midfoot strike. So when you work with a barefoot running coach, which is actually just a midfoot running coach, you have to be at a certain tempo to actually get a proper midfoot strike pattern. Then finally, uh, forefoot strike is like sprinting. So if you look at, um, like Usain Bolt doing a 100 meter dash, he would never do a 100-meter dash in a heel strike because you cannot run that fast. And contact time is an influencer of speed. So the faster you run, what makes you run fast is your ability to get off of the ground. Now, your ability to get off of the ground is based off of how quickly you can stiffen your foot. So the stiffer that you make your foot and your lower extremity through really myofascial contraction, so the muscles contract in the fascia response with tension, that stiffness allows you to kind of recoil off of the ground faster. That is where I see a lot of injuries is insufficient stiffness at foot contact. Which means that you will see more insufficient stiffness injuries in a heel strike runner because the demands of stiffness are different, are, are lower. You don't have to be as stiff because it's just a different pattern. Then they're on the ground longer and they're exposed to impact longer and being insufficiently stiff exposes you to potential injury from in impact forces so that's where you want to start to shift now it's very interesting of heel strike midfoot strike forefoot strike is that a lot of people don't know how they run they think that they're running a certain way and i've done hundreds of running gait assessments on patients and this was partly in the boom so i just had a ton of runners because i think running was in a boom but even now with COVID, I feel that running is a bo- in a boom because gyms are closed. So we have to be really um, appreciative of this and the role that you could have as a trainer and a coach to work with your clients now that they're probably running a lot more or taking up running um, and some of the injuries you might be seeing. So um, heel strike, midfoot, foot foot strike is that... that you have to know what you're doing. You have to make sure that you're doing it correctly. And a lot of people will actually do a strike pattern on one foot. There'll be a heel striker on their right side and a midfoot striker on their left side. So you can actually see the difference. And I see that not to open this is a Pandora's box question, and I apologize, but you can see that when people have limb length discrepancies. You can see that when people have obliquity in their pelvis. So one side, when you rotate the pelvis forward, and let's say my right pelvis is sitting a little bit more forward, that's going to change the way that I strike the ground and essentially make my right side a little bit longer than my left side. So any asymmetry of that foot contact. Now, let's say my left side, I heel strike and my right side, I midfoot strike. My left side is on the ground longer, and if you say I, my left heel hurts, I have plantar fasciitis on my left heel. I now know why, because you're exposed to higher impact and risk of overuse on that left side. So it's it is really important. I think that a natural running pattern should be midfoot. Um, a lot of people don't do forefoot. That's really sprinting, is what forefoot is. Um, midfoot, you are essentially hitting your midfoot, or you can actually come in like this. You're not even like this. You're you're actually like the side of your foot, and then your foot goes down and you take off. So it's not even a midfoot, but it's it's a flatter foot that you're striking gra- the ground on. Um, there are exceptions to every rule. I've had a patient who ruptured both of her plantar fascia doing midfoot running. She's an example of, you need to be a heel striker. Your physiology and baseline elasticity of your plantar fascia cannot meet the demands of midfoot strike. And we trained and we trained and she worked with some top coaches. And I was, after doing stem cell in both heels, I was like, you have to become
1: and stay. A a bicyclist.
0: A a bicyclist. (laughs) (laughs) A (laughs)
1: heel striker.
0: Yeah. So, I mean that helps to give you some initial appreciation of this um and then there's a lot more that you can delve into that but um I hope that that answers the question and and gives the meaning of barefoot running kind of a different understanding.
1: Oh that is fantastic. Well listen we're going to we're going to have to close this out but I I will say that I hope that we can leave here with an agreement that you will come back again and answer all of my other questions. (laughs) So I think we should. Yeah, perfect. Good. Uh, And with that said, please let people know um, your company, where to find you, social media. If you do that, like what, what's the best way for people to find and follow?
0: Yeah. So my websites are ebfaglobal.com. That's my education company um, that will link you to the YouTube and the social channels. My book, which is barefoot strong um, is barefootstrong.com. You can get it on Amazon and all of that, but it just kind of connects that, that barefoot strong. And then um, Naboso is another company of mine, which is textured proprioceptive insoles and mats and a B O S And then my practice is my name. So my my name is typed there, dremilysplickle.com. And then I tell people that if you just want to find me and you don't remember any of that, just put Dr. Emily Barefoot in Google and you will get everything (laughs) that you want. I, I don't hide.
1: Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Your insights were valuable and appreciated uh, and you delivered them wonderfully and it was just fun to listen to you. So thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. And for all of you listening, thank you for being here. My name is Dr. Rick Ritchie. You can reach out to me at dr.rickritchie on Instagram primarily. You can hit me up at rick.ritchie at nasm.org if you have any questions or you have an idea of a topic that you'd like to hear about. Or if you have a particular someone like Dr. Splickle that you would like to have on the show, let me know and we'll see what we can do to reach out. Thanks for listening. It's great to have you. This is the NASM CPT podcast.